0: Welcome back, About South listeners. In honor of tomato season, we are bringing you a special episode of one of our favorite podcasts, Story of My Life, by our friend, Lindsay Alexander. Story of My Life asks people over 70 how they got to be where they are. And those stories are at once charming, enlightening, and inspiring. In this episode, Lindsay talks to Bill Best, about collecting heirloom seeds. It is a great episode, and we're happy to bring it to you today. You can also find Story of My Life podcast wherever you get your podcast, and on their website, storyofmylifepod.com. We'd also like to remind you to check out our own Patreon, About South Podcast, and our support pages at aboutsouthpodcast.com. Without further ado, here is Story of My Life.
1: Hello, and welcome to the third episode of Story of My Life, the podcast that asks interesting guests over 70 how they came to be who they are and where they are. I'm Lindsay Alexander, and I'll be doing the asking Story of My Life aims to introduce you to all kinds of people who have lived a lot and share a lot. I believe one of the best gifts a person can give is to truly listen to another. So thank you for tuning in and for listening.
2: I'm um, Bill be Best. I'm 80 years old, I'll be 81 in December 29th, and uh, we've lived here on Pilot Knob Cemetery Road since 1973.
1: When I visit Bill Best's farm, it's a beautiful Kentucky day in late October. The sky is a penetrating blue. The leaves are turning, so that the mountain at the back of his property looks like a burning bush. Yet tomatoes are still ripening on the vines, and okra blooming. It's a season that a suburbanite like me might mistake for pastoral, but Bill is busy.
2: My morning routine is to um, get up, and woke up, and get the newspaper. I'm still a newspaper addict. I- First thing I do is read the news every morning and sometimes turn the television on and listen to CNN at the same time I'm reading and uh, also eating uh, breakfast at the, at the same time, my cereal. And then I, depending on the weather, get out and uh, at this time of year I'll start um, Picking seed beans for our seed saving operation have to be they have to be picked in a timely fashion before uh, the seeds some of the seeds might sprout in the hulls if they're if they get wet during uh, the time when they are when they should be picked. And uh, so it's important to get them picked, uh, put them in my greenhouse, lay them out on sheets, let them finish drying out, and then I'll be shelling them out shortly. And uh, then we'll sort them out after we shell them out, and then put them in Ziploc bags and freeze them. It's very important to get the bean seeds frozen.
1: Together, Bill and his wife, Ermgard, raised their three children on this farm. Berea College, where Bill attended school and spent his career, owns land that runs about a half mile along the best property line. His career at Berea spanned four decades. There, he taught, ran the Upward Bound program, and served as an administrator and swim coach. He received a graduate degree from the University of Tennessee in physical education and modern dance. He served in the military. He has done the stonework on his house, he writes satirical allegories, he's run creative writing initiatives in public schools, he's choreographed a production of Fiddler on the Roof, he's a news junkie. Truly, Bill Best is a renaissance man. Depending on who you are and where you're from, it either will or won't surprise you that he's done it all from southern Appalachia, but perhaps what Bill is known for best is his work as a farmer. At the Lexington Farmer's Market, he's known as the tomato man, though he'll tell you he's actually an heirloom bean man. He also runs the not-for-profit seed-saving operation Sustainable Mountain Agriculture Center, which has sold seeds in all 50 states and at least a dozen countries. We focus our conversation mostly on his life with the land. Can you tell us a bit about your upbringing, Um, maybe about where you grew up in North Carolina and your family life?
2: I was born in 1935, uh, the first child of Margaret Sanford Best and Ray Best, and it was in the midst of the Depression, and uh, I was born into a subsistence farming family, meaning that uh, We grew almost everything that we ate and traded. Uh, My father would trade for, he would take eggs to McClure's Grocery in Hazelwood, Haywood County, North Carolina, and trade uh, his eggs for coffee and sugar, spices, and things that my mother would use for cooking. We would uh, take a turn of corn to the mill about five miles downstream from where I was raised, and uh, no money ever exchanged hands. Uh, We would... um, He would have the corn ground, and then the miller would keep a portion of it and sell to someone else. So not only did money never exchanged hands. There was very little money that anyone had at that time. Most, I never, my father died at uh, 83 in 82 and my mother died almost at 83 in 90, 94. They were, she was 12 years younger than he was, but uh, I never heard either of them use the word going shopping it was always trading, and trading from most of my life at home was was literal. It uh, he traded for, for whatever for whatever uh, he he got. Um, I had um, my sister Adeline came on was born when I was uh, two and a half. Dan, my first brother, was born when I was uh, five. John, my younger brother, was born when I was 12. And Janet, my youngest, other sister, was born three weeks before I became a freshman at Berea College. We were spread out over 18 years, and uh, we were a close-knit family, not only uh, my nuclear family, but the extended family as well. I had, I think I counted up one day, 50-some first cousins on about half on my father's side, about half on my mother's side and uh, we would have reunions every summer uh, more often on the best side of the family than on the Sanford side of the family. But uh, I became close to many of my first cousins and uh, still am uh, those of us that uh, that survive. But um, we were rural and uh, I thought that I was eating the best food on earth, and uh, the older I get, the more I realize that that was the case, Uh, because uh, that's uh, what—it was nutritious, and it it wasn't uh, full of hormones, and uh, that was, of course, in the days before GMOs became so prevalent and were— plants were being bred for toughness and long distance transportation and uh, long shelf life in grocery stores. Uh, We uh, dried our our beans and we dried our, we dried most everything and uh, that was in the days uh, before freezing. when my mother did do a lot of canning and uh, pickling as, as well, but uh, we we dried uh, beans into leather britches, and uh, there were beans on their wood stove. We never, my mother uh, maintained her wood stove cooking until she died uh, about three weeks before her 83rd birthday. My youngest brother, John, had won a an electric stove When um, at a rural electric cooperative meeting when he was five. And we brought that stove home, and it sat by the um, wooden cook stove, I guess until my mother died. But it was never used for cooking. It was used for storage, storing pots and pans, and heating water, but she continued using the wood stove for, for cooking because that was her preference. It was my certainly my father's preference and all of our family's preference, uh, the wood cook stove. Beans would stay on, on the stove almost all the time and to be heated up at every meal and getting better at every meal because the uh, seasoned pork seasoning would uh, still continue to permeate the, the beans. And so they, they got better every day.
1: And you talked a bit about um, the food, growing up with the food that um, your family grew. Uh, what are your earliest memories in the garden?
2: My earliest memory in the garden was picking beans. And um, I was about two and a half, and I would uh, pick the beans on the lower side of the corn stalks, cornfield beans, while my mother uh, would pick the ones higher up. And I was fascinated by the colors of the beans, both the colors of the hulls and the colors of the seeds as well. I was also fascinated by the colors of the um, <clears throat> saddleback stinging worms and also the white-colored stinging worms that I later discovered were the larva of of certain insects. But uh, anyhow, I learned that if, if you got stung by those stinging worms, that it would um, bring up a pretty pretty heavy welt on your arm or your cheek or wherever you got stung, and so I learned to avoid them, and I learned to look at the corn leaves to, to determine if the stinging worms might be nearby, because they would be feeding on the leaves of the corn, uh, especially during a time when the corn was silking. There probably was some... some connection to that. I don't know what that connection might have been, but at least I, I learned how to avoid them, and I'm, I still tend to avoid uh, saddleback stinging worms whenever I see them. But I think they're the larvae. I knew this at one time, but I think they're the larvae of a beautiful butterfly, to tell you the truth. Another of my earliest memories was being in the uh, tobacco patch um picking off tobacco worms that would be eating the tobacco leaves or uh, as i discovered also they would be eating uh, the leaves of tomato plants and of course we didn't want that they would be eating in the to the tomatoes as well but all of my early memories uh, have to do with um, with plants and animals uh, more more especially plants than than with animals because the plants were what we depended on for our food. And of course, we depended on the animals for our food too. I learned to milk very early in life and I think that's the reason my hands got so big was that um, my first paying job was when my Aunt Bertie broke her arm and I was hired by her husband, Uncle Hub, Hugh Hugh Best, my father's older older brother, at five dollars a week to milk ten cows in the morning and the same ten cows in the afternoon because he sold milk during that time. My parents sold milk too, but uh, I never did the milking for them. But uh, well, I did do milking for them, too, but uh, not for pay. The, the pay was uh, $5 a week. That was a, a lot of money during, during that time. And I was probably in, uh, I suspect, the uh, fourth or fifth grade when, when I started doing that. But I, I learned to milk very early in life. And uh, I would go out with my mother to the milk gap every afternoon. In every morning and as long as the weather was fit barefooted I never never wore shoes until it got so cold in the fall that I had to start wearing shoes and uh, then I pull them off in the spring as uh, as soon as the weather got warm enough and my feet weren't freezing too much but uh, probably one of the reasons that my immune system developed to be, apparently, fairly strong uh, was that I went barefooted all the time. And that was a habit I continued on through high school and even into college. Um, measured tobacco acreage for the Agricultural Stabilization and Conservation Service in Haywood County, North Carolina, until I was uh, out of college. and. I I went barefooted throughout all of that, and my younger brother would be barefooted too, and there are photographs of us, and we noticed a lot of times, tourists would stop along the road and ask to take pictures with us. Uh, We were the archetypal barefooted hillbillies, and uh, many of the people, I probably had more education than a lot of the people who stopped to take their photographs with me at at that time, but uh, I continued going barefooted until after my senior year in college where I, uh, before I started my graduate school, I was, i was been 23 years of age, and nobody ever seemed to think anything about it, but I may have been the only person and only federal employee in the country at that time who was still going barefooted. I I don't know. (laughs)
1: What is your favorite childhood memory? Is it one of your memories from the garden, or is it time a special time with your family? Or
2: I think my, I had a lot of wonderful childhood memories, but um, I think my favorite childhood memory was when we didn't, didn't uh, have a killing frost until after Thanksgiving Day and on thanksgiving day i went out to the tomato patch and we actually had a snow before we had a killing frost and we had a a snow on thanksgiving day i went out to the tomato patch and removed the snow and picked to wrap tomatoes from a freshly fallen snow and of course tomatoes have um, have been a big part of my life and Still are. One of the things that I grow so many of now are heirloom tomatoes as well as my heirloom beans. But um, I took tomato sandwiches to school for my lunch until all of the large, larger tomatoes were gone. That would have been probably early October. And then the tomato tomatoes, the smaller Intensely flavored tomatoes that we never had to plant each year. They always grew up as volunteers. I would take tomato tomato sandwiches for the next two weeks. And then after the tomato tomatoes finally gave out, I would take mayonnaise tomatoes for the next two weeks and pretend I was eating tomato sandwiches. That was the, my love of, of tomatoes, just but,
1: plain mayonnaise on bread?
2: Just plain mayonnaise on bread. Um, <laughs> and because I, I had such an imagination that I, um, that I just could imagine myself. I learned to like mayonnaise, uh, but I was imagining that I was eating tomato sandwiches.
1: So one of your favorite ways to eat a tomato is um, a tomato and mayonnaise sandwich. What are some of your other ways to... Uh, besides maybe just straight off the vine, prepare or eat tomatoes?
2: Mostly I I like fresh tomatoes rather than processed tomatoes, but I eat them just by themselves with salt. I eat them on on sandwiches. And uh, my wife and I both like um, tomatoes on top of okra so we'll fry okra and uh, then let the tomatoes the tomato slices on top of the fried okra permeate down down through the the okra as well. I like it very much that way. Then I like tomatoes uh, on beans, green beans. Uh, I'll uh, have cornbread and butter and diced onions all mixed up in a mixture, and then sliced tomatoes on top of that. But uh, I don't particularly care for, for any kind of processed tomatoes. I do like tomato juice, but mostly, mostly fresh tomatoes, and, and I eat them with everything uh, except as dessert.
1: Bill and his wife started their first garden when they moved to Berea in the early 60s on land they bought with another couple in a neighboring county. It was his first time buying seeds from a seed catalog, and he found the beans to be...
2: Like shoe leather. And uh, so I complained bitterly to my friend, fellow landowner. And I said, you know, I, I just don't... understand this and he said well you better be get used to it because that's the way it's going to be and uh, so I I said to myself not if I can help it (laughs) and when I was home in North Carolina I complained to my mother that Thanksgiving when we were there and she said well I can solve that problem and she gave me some of the seeds of beans that I had grown up with.
1: I asked Bill about other concerns that he has regarding plants, starting with climate change.
2: I'm more I'm more concerned about GMOs, to tell you the truth, I am about global warming right, right now. And I'm just, uh, when we um, put the Flounder gene into the Flavor Saver tomato, which uh, uh, thank goodness Monsanto took off the market once they had bought it, uh, and when we put um, Brazil nut genes in, into soybeans uh, in order to increase the protein content, but yet the the gene that was transferred was the one that people who are allergic to Brazil nuts uh, are allergic to, making them then uh, allergic to soybeans. And of course, soybeans are in so many things now. So I uh, I'm, I'm concerned about. Uh, global warming but I'm more concerned about the GMOs and uh, I've been heavily criticized by some of the people who say that that I should be all for for GMOs but but I'm not I just I just think that uh, traditional plant breeding of selecting the best seeds the best plants to save seeds from over the years has has been very effective in improving uh, both nutrition and, and yield, and, and I think they can both be improved at the same time.
1: Maybe for our listeners who have, you know, heard about GMOs on the news, but just in the kind of sensationalist way, one way or the other, that a two-minute bit might get into, can you talk a little bit about what the concerns are with GMOs and how they became so prevalent so quickly?
2: as a biology major myself, and I don't, certainly don't consider myself a a biologist, but I'm concerned about uh, genetic diversity and I think the problem with GMOs is um, is the movement of genes from one plant species to another plant species or even from animals to plants and things like this, we might we might improve certain things, but I think there's just too many unanswered questions, and we, we certainly don't, don't need to do any of this transgenetic stuff uh, in order to feed the world. We could feed the world easily enough just simply by not wasting so much food, but uh, the um, Southern cornblatt. Uh, I think genetic diversity, which we have so much of in beans, for example, at this point, is is important, uh, just so that some insect or some uh, plant disease won't come through as it did with southern cornblatt and wipe out so much of the uh, of the crop of a particular individual.
1: Southern corn blight hit the United States corn supply in 1970, according to the University of Illinois, reducing the overall harvest by 20 to 25 percent, and even more so in the South. It was eventually solved by detasseling corn. However, The National Academy of Sciences noted in its study following the blight that, quote, the corn crop fell victim to the epidemic because of a quirk in the technology that had redesigned the corn plants of America until, in one sense, they had become as identical as twins. Whatever made one susceptible made them all susceptible, quote. This twindom is known as monoculture. However, Bill does see how gmos could play a helpful role to counteract that.
2: I could see one advantage to genetic modification and that might be to uh, citrus greening in um, in the citrus crops or or um, if some if it could be used in some way to bring back the american chessin or or something like that. I could see research in that area being very positive. But I'm concerned about it being primarily done to to increase uh, the control that uh, multinational corporations have over the food supply. That's that's my worry about it, and uh, and that's what I'm doing my share, I think, uh, to prevent just by holding on to genetic diversity. And I think that. Um, just what, what's been done to the green bean to make it a protein-free food. I think is just uh, the hat of irresponsibility.
1: In the documentary that the Southern Foodways Alliance features on you, you talk about, uh, well, maybe I can't remember whether you talk about or they just mentioned that you're known as the tomato man in Berea. And if you address a letter to the tomato man um, without your name, you'll wind up getting it. Can you talk a little bit about maybe how you came to be known as that person in this area and, and what it means to you?
2: We started selling commercial tomatoes to a co-op in in Monticello. And um, in 1984, I believe, I'm not sure of the exact date, we had a, a very bad hailstorm that essentially destroyed our tomato crop as far as selling commercial tomatoes and um, but I could take those same tomatoes to the farmers markets and even though they had hail scars on them they were still of excellent quality and the uh, farmers market customers uh, bought them very avidly and uh, at that same time I had started growing, some heirloom tomatoes as well. And uh, people were beginning to show a preference for the heirloom tomatoes because of flavor and texture. And uh, so I moved increasingly toward the heirlooms, but I was still growing some of the better hybrids, including one called Momotaro. Translated as tough boy, a Japanese tomato. So I never went completely over to heirloom tomatoes uh, as much as I did to heirloom beans. I don't grow any any commercial beans at all. I still grow some some uh, hybrid tomatoes because there are still some hybrid tomatoes that that have good flavor and texture. And so I don't I don't give up on something. Just because of ideology, uh, I, I give up on it because of quality, and that's why I've given up completely on on um, commercial beans uh, because they're they're just too tough to eat. Gradually, over the years, and we uh, got a reputation for having the best tomatoes in uh, Lexington and in in Berea, and. Uh, I've got a um, a former intern, um, Mark and his wife Velvet Hinkle, uh, who have pretty much surpassed me in Lexington. Now they they grow a lot more than I do, and uh, they they have an outstanding reputation in in Lexington right now. Tomatoes tend to be color coded. The red tomatoes, which are the industry standard now, tend to be high in acids. The pink tomatoes tend to be high in sugars and in acids and have what many people refer to as the old-fashioned flavor. Yellow tomatoes, especially the yellow ones with red smudges and streaks, um, commonly known as the yellow germans, of which there are at least thirty five different variants that I know of myself. They are the sweetest of all of the uh, commonly grown heirloom tomatoes, and then you have the green one ripe, the purple the the black, the brown all of the other colors that have different um, combinations of sugars and acids and and uh, volatiles that give them their their, their smell and uh, basically the uh, the the commercial tomatoes the ones that are picked for green and gassed during long distance shipping just have uh, hardly any flavor and and uh, certainly no no smell and so i just you know i i guess I've, at some point i got a little bit farther along in this Process than most of my peers did. I was focusing more on quality, and instead of the uh, instead of the uh, how much money I could make on on something, and that just gave me uh, the reputation in some people's minds as as the tomato man. But as far as I'm concerned, it's more the uh, the beans that I have specialized in because I have far more bean varieties. And then, then I do tomato varieties uh, at this time. Probably over 700 bean varieties. We don't have an exact accounting yet, but um, that's coming. We will we will we'll know in a year or so what what I do have.
1: How many of those 700 varieties do you do you plan out, or do you rotate which ones you're planning out, or stick with some?
2: We have have been growing probably about 100 varieties a year. Each year I try to grow 15 to 20 varieties that are new to me. These are old varieties that I just haven't grown before. That, um, and we, have, we host a seed event at our farm the first Saturday in October each year. And each year... During that event and during the during the year, uh, people will send me or bring me in, in person a bunch of new varieties, and I feel obligated to grow as many of them out as i as I can and This is from all over the country. I specialize in Appalachian varieties, but uh, we have to realize that Appalachian varieties have been taken by Appalachian migrants, people going other places to, uh, to make a living, have Appalachian people have traditionally taken their seeds with them, especially beans. And so some of the purest Appalachian heirloom bean varieties are from Oregon, Washington, Minnesota, Michigan, uh, all the other places that uh, Appalachian people have, have migrated to over the years and uh, I've also helped bring some back from from extinction the, the noble bean especially in Oregon that was taken to Oregon uh, in 1898 by a Mr. Noble I can't remember the place in West Virginia he was from but it was grown by his family through four generations and his great-granddaughter suddenly realized that nobody was growing the family bean and she found some seeds in an outbuilding, uh, that were 17 years old and she was not able to get any of them to germinate. And she had read about me on the internet and she sent me an email asking if I would accept some seeds to see if I could get some to germinate. And so she sent me several hundred and I realized that, that they, uh, they had gotten damp at some time and had swollen up and had shrunk back. And, uh, the embryonic part of the plant had apparently dropped out of almost all of them. And I, I had very little hope of doing it, but uh, I put them in some seed-starting mixture and kept them, watched them carefully every day for three weeks, and I was getting discouraged that I would be able to do it. But suddenly my wife saw uh, some green popping up, and uh, within two or three days, six seeds had germinated a grasshopper um f- found them as well and promptly ate one of them and I, I realized that I was in gonna have to be more careful and so I, I picked each of the remaining five out and potted them, put them in my greenhouse and uh, let them uh, re- establish some growth and then transplanted four of them into a high tunnel and left one of them in the greenhouse. To grow in the greenhouse, the four in the high tunnel grew well for a while, but then were uh, they got in affected somehow by dung beetles and ants, and all four of them died, leaving me the only one in my greenhouse that survived long enough to produce four bean pods and 11 seeds. And so I was 11 seeds away from extinction. I sent five back to the lady in Oregon, And uh, I gave one to John Kalkindahl at uh, Blackberry Farm in uh, Tennessee. Uh, He had exceptional luck with his producing, I think, 380 seeds, and he sent half of them to me. The lady I sent them back to in Oregon had uh, real good success with hers, and uh, Consequently, the noble bean is quite safe from extinction. It is what we in the southern mountains call um, a fall bean or um, or um, October bean, but it's it's a tender hull one. And uh, October beans, fall beans, can are usually eaten at the shelly stage, uh, which means they're eaten as they're shelled shell from the uh, the hull while it's still damp, or they can be dried and eaten as dry beans, or they can be canned or, or eaten with the hulls as well. It's just one of those very versatile beans that, by the way, the Indians were uh, growing here in Kentucky 800 to 1,000 years ago. They, they were growing the same four types of beans 1,000 years ago that were were still growing today.
1: That brings us to the Lost Arts and Good Advice portion of the podcast, in which our guests share a bit of their expertise. Today, Bill tells us how to save tomato seeds. I was wondering, for people who maybe have a home garden and they're just getting into growing heirlooms, or they maybe don't have the greenest of thumbs, could you give instructions on how to properly save a seed from a from a tomato if they want to plant the same kind again the next season?
2: Uh, there are several ways of saving tomato seeds. The oldest way is to let the tomato get uh, dead ripe and then take a spoon. And um, what a lot of the older people did is just take a spoon, lift out cut the tomato in, in half and just lift out a bunch of the tomato seeds and put them on a piece of cloth or put them on a paper towel or, or something like that. The older people would just put them on a piece of cloth when paper, paper towels came into existence, uh, put them on a paper towel. Some people will just plant the in the paper towel where they've been spread out and just plant that. And let the tomatoes grow up from it, but the the best way and the way that we've been using for many years is the fermentation method is to um, take the nearly rotten tomato, dead wrap for, for for sure, and uh, cut it and quarter it. Uh, then just scoop out as much of the pulp as possible containing the tomato seeds. Put them in a container, let them ferment for three or four days, stirring it two or three times a day, then pouring water into the top of the container, letting the pulp tilt it a little bit to its side, let the pulp move out over the sides until finally you have nothing left uh, but um, the seeds. The uh, Bad seeds will float to the top and, and can be disposed of for the rest of the pulp. But eventually, you're going to have uh, nothing but tomato seeds at the bottom of your container. Then put them in a finely meshed uh, kitchen strainer. Some people put them on paper plates, uh, but I prefer myself putting it uh, you know, on wax paper then spreading them out uh, with a pointer of of some kind uh, and uh, letting them dry for three or four days. Uh, I I usually let mine dry under a a fan in the kitchen, and frequently within 24 hours they're they're dry enough to save. Um, But you can uh, scrape them off of the wax paper, then... uh, take your thumb and forefinger and and break up any that are in little clumps and then put them in a uh, container, an airtight container of some kind. And increasingly, we have just left ours at room temperature. Uh, some some people still put them in freezers. With beans, you indeed need to put them in freezers, in airtight containers, but with tomato seeds, uh, i found that they, they will, at room temperature, in the dark, that they will hold for, for several years that way.
1: You've talked about the, the nutrients that are preserved by, by uh, growing heirloom beans, and you offered up the story about the, the noble bean and kind of saving that family history of migration as well. In collecting all these seeds, are the stories being saved as well? Are there some stories that are that you wish you knew that are lost to you? Can you can you talk a bit about how you're preserving a certain history or community aspect as well?
2: Whenever I find the story, I I save the story as much as I can, and uh, I have a friend Frank Barnett who will be featured very much in in the new book, Uh, I'll have to say that he's better at collecting the stories than I am because um, since his retirement from IBM, probably 10 years or more ago, uh, he has devoted almost his full time to um, visiting communities and individuals in communities in Eastern Kentucky Southwest Virginia and parts of West Virginia. Once he gets a lead on something, he, he pursues it actively, and he has over 370,000 miles on his 99 Toyota Camry now, and much of that has been visiting people, and uh, he's collecting a lot of stories too. I'm collecting as many as I can and I have the ones from my own family and my own community and things like this. But for for example, a good story that I'll tell from from what he's gonna be in my in my new book, um, the Josara fallbane, J O S A R A and uh, Frank, when he first heard about uh, this bean having that name, he started investigating, and he thought it might be from one of the Eastern European families uh, that had migrated into southeastern Kentucky in the early part of the 20th century during the coal boom. And he discovered that, uh, no, the Josara fall bean was named after a couple, whose names were Joe and Sarah, and uh, so they had just put the two names together and they called it the Joe Sarah Fall Bean. The name of each bean uh, implies a story, and you, usually um, people were very creative in in naming those beans. But uh, I've got a a bean. I guess it's the Hedrick Greasy Cut Short. That was found in a um, in a deserted home in Harlan County, and the floor cracks, the cracks on the floor, and uh, then they were they were grown. And well, it's actually named after I guess the fellow who who found it, and there was no story. It's just the fact that uh, people will go to all. All odds, and there's going to be another one in my new book too that um, named after a, a dump uh, where the guy who found it uh, found the beans growing in a dump, and uh, so he just he just named him after the after the dump. But uh, who who knows who may have put it there? When I first asked my mother, I said, "Mother, how did this?" bean why is it called the goose bean and she said well her her grandfather had killed a wild goose and found the uh, the siege in its crawl and that since thereafter it has been called the goose bean well i discovered that that same story has been told to thousands of, of kids and undoubtedly it was uh, the original story was, but it wasn't necessarily my mother's grandfather, although it might have been. The And the turkey crawl bean is, is the same way.
1: Well, there are no guarantees, it seems the next generations of the Best family are ready to continue the work Bill picked up from his mother. One of his sons, an ag economist at Tennessee Tech, is planning on taking over the seed operation, the Sustainable Mountain Agriculture Center. Bill said the emphasis is on...
2: Maintaining its integrity uh, as a not-for-profit, multi-purpose, multi-disciplinary thing uh, because seed saving is more than agriculture. It's anthropology, sociology. It's a lot of other things as well.
1: His granddaughters have shown interest and one, a junior at Tennessee Tech...
2: ...is now working with a um, geneticist in... Doing DNA sequencing of all of our beans to see if we have any duplicates.
1: Shifting gears to maybe broader questions, when do you feel most yourself?
2: When do I feel most myself? Um, Every day, every day I learn something new, and I feel most myself. I guess you would say, when I'm out on our our farm, uh, gathering walnuts from trees that I planted myself 25 to 30 years ago, Uh, looking at new beans that I'm growing this year for the first time, and I must say that I still learn something new every day when I'm when I break a bean open and string it and discover that there there are two strings coming off from from each half of the bean, I didn't realize until fairly recently that uh, that there are two two strings on a lot of varieties of beans that are actually three two on one the inner the inner side of the bean and the the outer side of the the bean, and uh, but I, I guess I should say I hate to admit it, but I'm, I'm learning new things uh, every day, and that's that's when I feel uh, the most alive, for sure. I expected frost last night, but we didn't get
0: a frost last night.
1: That curiosity and activity is visible on the best farm. When Bill takes me on a tour, I can see it. There's the sawmill, the woodshop, the building where the beans are hulled and dried. Of course, nature has a way of taking its toll too. The area where his son's house once stood, clobbered by a landslide the insurance company refused to pay for. The final hoop house, a heavy snow ruined the others. Bill's knowledge is deep and wide ranging. Like he said of seed saving, it isn't just agricultural. It's sociological. It's anthropological. The walnut trees he planted, two American chestnuts a friend sent him that they think may have disease resistance. The story of Daniel and Squire Boone coming around between Robe and Basin Mountains, Squire carving his name in a rock that's now displayed at the courthouse. In a world of idealized mobility and necessary migrations, The best farm shows what's best about staying put. The benefits of patience, care, intelligence, and long days. He's downsized somewhat to accommodate waning energy and fewer hands on the farm. Yet, I wouldn't quite mistake it for simpler. It still requires a lot of knowledge and a lot of work. While I'm not sure how long I'll stay put, inspired by Bill, I do plan on introducing some heirloom beans into my garden this year and taking my seeds with me if I go. What has surprised you most about your own life?
2: Well, what has surprised me about my own life that it's been surprising that I'm still as active as I am still as inquisitive as I am, still as caring about as I am about uh, other people, still being so enthused about um, children, grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and uh, finding that I can still relate as well to them. I'm not quite an old fogey, uh, yet um, find that I'm still interested in a lot in uh, all, all generations of people.
1: Story of My Life is brought to you from beautiful East Tennessee. I hope you've enjoyed it. Subscribe on your favorite podcaster so you don't miss an episode. For links to Bill's satirical allegory, revision of Jack and the Beanstalk, photos of his farm, and more, visit our website at storyofmylifepod.com. Do you know or are you someone who should be on the show? Shoot us an email at storyofmylifepod at gmail.com. Our music, don't be sour, was written by Ali Arendt and performed by Ali Arendt and Darren Woodleaf. Larry Buchanan designed the Story of My Life logo. Gina Kaysen has provided technical assistance. Special thanks for this episode to Dr. Monica Miller. And until next time, good night, Mrs. Calabash, wherever you are. I'm from Kentucky. I know about that.
0: (laughs) We'd like to thank Lindsay Alexander for sharing this episode of Story of My Life podcast with us. You can find more about her work at storyofmylifepod.com. Lindsay also has a new book of poetry coming out, Rodeo in Reverse. We'll post details on our website. About South is brought to you from the historic West End of Atlanta, Georgia. Kelly Vines and Ajoa Danso are my co-producers. Lindsay Baker is our marketing director. Our regular music is by Brian Horton. You can find his music at brianhorton.com. You can find us at aboutsouthpodcast.com. And we'd like to take a moment and ask you again. We know we're getting annoying but to please go to our Patreon or our support pages to make any gift that you feel like you can to help us keep About South on the air. It does cost real money out of our real pockets to bring this to you each week, and we'd really appreciate anything you can do to help us continue this content. We'll be back next week sharing one more podcast about the South that we're big fans of. We'll see you then.